Cows eat grass. You put them out to pasture and they'll munch away all day long. Anyone who's driven through the country will know this to be true. But did you know that less than 3% of the beef here in America is grass-fed? Most of what we eat is actually corn-fed beef, and it's been that way for more than 50 years. You see, way back when, technological advances helped create efficiency in the beef industry, which led to both increased production and lower costs. So we're talking about the 1960s and 70s, and it allowed for quick expansion, which, as it turns out, wasn't all that good for us. Quality suffered, and it became increasingly more difficult for consumers to know two things. Number one, where our beef came from, and number two, the manner in which it was raised. Well, along came Bill Nyman, the man who would lead a revolution when he founded Nyman Ranch out in California. Stick around for the rest of Bill's story, plus a bunch of other great stories, because today I want to give you a better understanding of how stories can help us sell. There's an old saying goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, thanks again for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast dedicated entirely to the restaurant industry. Each week we discuss the tools, tactics, and strategies that will establish you as a leader in your market. That means doing more covers and driving more revenue. We choose a topic, we pick it apart, we come up with some key insights, and then we finish up with an assignment. I always leave you with a short, actionable task, something you can do right away to start implementing some of the ideas that we talk about here on the show. Because as I always say, information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. Now, if you like the show, make sure to hit the subscribe button. If you feel like going above and beyond, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. All those reviews and ratings really do mean something, and I promise it takes just two minutes of your time. I appreciate it. Now, here in America, we pride ourselves on serving world-class steaks. For many, it's at the center of celebratory dining. It's often the most expensive item on a restaurant's menu and a splurge both in terms of dollars and calories. Now, that began more than 400 years ago, our relationship with beef, with steaks, right? So 400 years ago, when Christopher Columbus brought cattle with him to the Americas. Eventually, they made their way to the mainland when Cortez transported them to Mexico. And from there, they slowly made their way up into Texas, New Mexico, California, and beyond. For centuries, the cattle population continued to grow as the animals fed off the bountiful land of the Americas. But by the late 1970s, much of that had changed. Industrialization had taken over, and Bill Nyman and his team knew that something was being lost. Quality? Taste? Ethics? Maybe all three? So to begin, he set out to answer just one simple question. What makes a great steak? And the answer came back in three parts. Breeding, feeding, and proper handling of the beef after slaughter. And so Nyman Ranch was founded as a cooperative of ranchers all committed to the same set of strict guidelines. All natural, no antibiotics, no hormones ever, 
all pasture-raised and then vegetarian feeds when necessary, which typically means grass-fed beef that then gets finished on a grain diet. And then finally, all of the animals must be humanely raised on environmentally sustainable ranches. To be part of the Nyman Ranch program requires ranchers to adhere to all of these guidelines and more. In fact, I'll link to the full document in the show notes for those who are curious. It is a serious set of commitments. But in the end, the Nyman Ranch organization believes that this is what produces the very best beef. And so Nyman Ranch means something. It stands for quality, right? So dry-aged Nyman Ranch Porterhouse or Nyman Ranch Pork Chop. When you list it on the menu, most diners will know what that means. And if they don't, a server can tell them some version of the story I just told. Rather than saying, trust me, it's high-quality beef, we tell a story that illustrates what we mean. For thousands of years, humans have used stories to communicate things to each other. Storytelling is ingrained in us and is woven through just about every aspect of what we do, most especially in how we conduct commerce. And by that I mean how we transact, how merchants sell things, and how consumers make decisions about what products to buy. So then, how exactly do we use stories to sell? Well, I think they fall into one of five categories. Number one, stories that communicate a brand's mission, their why. Number two, stories that spark conversation. Number three, stories that validate price. Number four, stories that bring deeper appreciation for the product or the brand. And then number five, stories as mythology. And many times, a story will do a lot of heavy lifting. For example, the one I just told about the founding of Nyman Ranch, it certainly fills number one, right? It communicates their mission, their why. And in many ways, it's a bit of mythology, right? So it's also number five, understanding all that a rancher has to go through to be able to say they're part of something so exclusive as Nyman Ranch. And then finally, I think it certainly helps with number three, understanding the lengths the company goes to also helps explain why the products carry a premium price tag. Let me tell you another one, the story of Gergich Hill's estate out in Napa Valley. How many of you are familiar with the Paris wine tasting of 1976? It's often referred to these days as the Judgment of Paris. Now, it was a blind tasting, which is now famous, where a panel of eminent French judges swirled, sniffed, and sipped some of the most fabled wines in the world. For the whites, they lined up many of the great white burgundies of France, along with a small sampling of upstart Chardonnays from California. And when their scores were tallied, the judges were shocked to discover that they had chosen the 1973 Chateau Montalena Chardonnay as the finest white wine in the world. That's right, a California wine had beaten out some of the greatest French producers. And the winemaker for that wine was a Croatian immigrant named Mike Gergic, who had left the country in 1954 to escape communism. He was a winemaker by trade, and he brought his knowledge with him here to America. Then for 20 years, he worked his way up through a variety of different wineries in Napa, but at the time of the tasting, he was still a virtual unknown, at least on the global stage. Well, as you can imagine, all that would quickly change. Within weeks of the tasting, he was approached about starting his own wine label, and by the following spring, they were breaking ground and planting a slew of fresh vines right in the heart of Napa. Gergich Hills Estate now produces some of the finest wines in California, a full lineup that includes Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, 
Zinfandel, Chardonnay, and many more. Their origin story is powerful. It's a bit of mythology that provides the foundation for everything they do. And why? Because it's unique. Like I'm always asking, what are the stories only you can tell? They own that story. And stories help anchor ideas in the mind of the consumer. They help the consumer better understand and appreciate what it is they're buying. They allow the consumer the opportunity to go deeper. Stories help justify the cost of the product, and then they give the consumer a foothold to understand what it is. By telling a compelling story, you give your patrons the tools to go out and do your marketing for you. Think of it this way. A couple goes out for a celebratory dinner, and they decide to get the porterhouse for two. It's an expensive cut of meat, maybe the most expensive item on the menu, and they love it. What are they going to tell their friends and family about the experience? Well, we had this steak, and it was incredible, the best steak we've ever had. Now, how many times have you heard that when talking to friends? And how many times have you smiled and simply written off their rave review? You write them off because you think back to your own experiences and you remember the best steak that you've ever had. And no way can this other one you're hearing about have beaten that other better one that you had. But then you also start considering the source. So yeah, maybe the couple telling you the story dines out often and maybe they go out to a lot of steakhouses. So yeah, perhaps you can believe them on this one. But far more often, you're hearing these kind of recommendations from friends or family or colleagues, people who aren't necessarily in the industry, and you think, well, they don't go out all that often, or they don't really know as much about food as I do. But if the couple had a story to tell, the exchange becomes something different. Suddenly, they're not just talking about their enjoyment of the dish, because remember, taste is largely subjective. But what if they said something like this? We had this porterhouse for two last night, and it was incredible. It was from Nyman Ranch, which uh, we found out is this sustainable farm out west where all of the steaks have to meet a series of really strict guidelines, and honestly, you could taste the difference. Well, then there's something concrete in there. There's a story you can latch on to. Another example to make my point. Alinea is out in Chicago. I've certainly talked about this restaurant before. Uh, If you follow along, it's one of the most celebrated restaurants in the country. And there are two things that separate it from all of the other great restaurants out there. Number one is their use of molecular gastronomy, but there are certainly other restaurants exploring that subject, even out there in Chicago. But then number two is the story of Chef Grant Ackett's and his battle with cancer, a battle that almost cost him his tongue and his life. And those two things set the stage for everything else. When you learn of the fact that Chef Ackett's nearly died of cancer at the age of 37, you begin to understand the restaurant's why. Grant was diagnosed with mouth cancer, and doctor after doctor told him they were going to have to remove his tongue to save his life. So a bright, young, upstart chef opens the restaurant of his dreams and suddenly is faced with the prospect of losing his ability to taste. The poetry is just too good to forget. You then start to understand also the dichotomy of his cuisine, equal parts serious and whimsical. He was given a new lease on life and suddenly the idea of carpe diem becomes the seasoning to all of his food. Dinner at Alinea is an event. It's about using food as the conduit for connection. It's about entertainment. It's about a unique shared experience between guests. 
The experience is heightened. It's even theatrical. Alinea is like no other restaurant in the world because their story is like no other restaurant in the world. So when a couple dines at Alinea, how do they describe their experience to friends and family afterwards? Maybe they'll point people to the episode of Chef's Table uh, on Netflix, right? But they'll probably talk about the quirky experience of dining at the restaurant, and I think probably they're going to tell people about Grant's unique story. That story is a bit of mythology that gives you a, a deeper appreciation for the restaurant and illustrates their why. Sommeliers will often tell stories when selling wine because it's challenging sometimes to talk to a guest about Napa cabs, right? To be sure, there are way more similarities between the wines on a given page than there are differences, and so it becomes important to try to highlight those differences. Does this sound familiar? It should, because remember, when we talked about our five pillars of marketing, the way to separate yourself from the competition, the way to differentiate yourself is to identify the stories that only you can tell. And sometimes, yeah, they can get technical and talk about the specific vineyard sites and the soil or the intricacies of the winemaker's process. But does the average diner really understand how all of those things affect the final product? At the end of the day, you grow grapes, you pick grapes, you, uh, you ferment the grapes, and that turns the sugar into alcohol. That creates wine. More often, you'll hear sommeliers talk about a specific winemaker and their approach to winemaking or their pedigree. They'll talk about the limited quantities of a specific bottling or how tightly allocated a certain wine is. They'll talk about the meaning of the name or the picture on the label or whatever, because at the end of the day, those are things that the diner will be more apt to remember. And a mediocre wine with a story gets sold more than a superior wine with no story. Don't believe me? Try it next time you're out at a nice restaurant. Ask to speak to the sommelier and tell her that you were deciding between wine A and wine B. And ask, can you tell me a bit about them? See what they say. Then for fun, ask for a recommendation. Is there something else in this price point that I should be drinking instead? And when they make their recommendation, ask them to talk a little bit about that wine. What has probably happened is that they've used that as an opportunity to tell you about a wine that they know more about, a wine perhaps that has a better story. And often that also means a wine that is more expensive. If they know what they're doing, they've taken you to a wine that's just a bit more expensive than the wines you said you were considering. The best salespeople out there understand that stories sell. To further illustrate that point, Jefferson's Reserve is a great bourbon. Here in New York City, you'll find it for maybe $17 or $18 a shot. It's good. But to be honest, I know relatively little about it. But they also have a more premium offering called Jefferson's Ocean. And it's available for a bit more money, maybe $20 or $22 a shot. And there's a story connected to that one that I know very well. Bourbon is a type of American whiskey known for its softer, sweeter characteristics. Oak aging is key to the process, and so some enterprising young marketer over at Jefferson's decided to take a bunch of barrels, load them onto a boat, and then send it around the world. Why would they do that? Not for the romance of it. Far from it. In fact, uh, the boat that these barrels are on is pretty ugly looking. But when you put whiskey barrels on a boat, the liquid gets sloshed around a bunch as the boat rocks up and down on the waves. So what happens is that the spirit inside is constantly splashing up against the barrel. This process is a way of increasing oak contact, thus making a more nuanced final product, one with more of those desirable bourbon characteristics. 
Is it the best bourbon on the market? Probably not, but it has a story, and you better believe that story gets told time and time again. Now, does $5 make a whole lot of difference, right? Because the Jefferson's Reserve is $17, and you're going to upsell them to the, the Jefferson's Ocean at $22. So maybe $5 doesn't make a huge difference. But if 20 people are ordering bourbon one night at the restaurant, and you can upsell them just $5 with a simple story, well, then that does start to make a difference to the tune of more than $30,000 a year in increased revenue. Seriously, do the math. Just by turning someone on to something new with a simple story, $30,000 is a significant amount of money. Now extrapolate that out across all of the categories of your menu in every area of the restaurant, and that, I think you'll see, can make an enormous difference. The best salespeople out there understand that stories sell, and the more you can incorporate stories into your day-to-day, -day, the more successful you're going to be. Great, I'm sure you're thinking, that's a fine thing to say, but then how do you do it? Well, let me tell you how one restaurant does it. Olmsted is one of my favorite restaurants here in New York City. It's a quirky little neighborhood gem in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn, awarded a rave two-star review from the New York Times back in 2016. The restaurant finds itself on tons of best of lists every single year. Stories are woven into everything they do. So the chef is Greg Backstrom, and he's an alum of Alinea. Yes, that Alinea, where he worked with Chef Grant Ackett's. He also spent time working at Per Se with Thomas Keller and up at Blue Hill Stone Barns in Terrytown with Chef Dan Barber. His pedigree is a story because even though he's doing casual food, most of the dishes are just 9 to 16 bucks, but he has serious chops. And the easiest way to convince someone of that is to show them. Another story? His partner in the restaurant is a guy named Max Katzenberg, and the two of them met while working at Blue Hill. It's where their friendship started and where they first started talking about future restaurants. For the both of them, Olmsted is their first restaurant, and from the very start, they knew they wanted to showcase high-end culinary technique in a more casual, comfortable environment. What does that mean? Well, the things they do to tell that story, there are no tablecloths, no fancy silverware, Tables are set with napkins in a copper napkin ring uh, with mismatched porcelain water glasses. Uh, the water pitchers are all different colors, shapes, sizes. They get left on each table. Uh, the servers aren't allowed to use any trays. Instead, they carry everything by hand, which conveys a hominess that reminds people of going to a friend's house for dinner instead of out at a fancy restaurant. That's a story they never have to say out loud. It's just evident in the way the restaurant operates. And remember, I'm always saying that every choice is an opportunity. Here, these two guys who spent a decade each working in fine dining chucked most of the pretense and they were deliberate with the choices they made. Another story? Well, Greg and Max built the restaurant themselves, which even included clearing out the backyard to make way for their own garden. Yep, the garden is another story. That's where they grow their own fruits, herbs, vegetables to use in the restaurant. Uh, they have a quail out there too, which lays eggs. And of course, the chef uses those eggs in the restaurant. Local, organic, sustainable. It's all part of the Olmsted ethos and on full display for all to see. In Brooklyn, when you take your limited real estate and turn it into a garden, it takes real guts. And as the saying goes, they're putting their money where their mouth is. So to continue on, another story you'll hear sometimes in the restaurant is this. Greg was a Boy Scout growing up, and so he peppers in those experiences into the restaurant experience. 
So s'mores is available for dessert, except you got to go out back into the garden to enjoy them. Why? Because it would be weird to have them indoors. So they bring you some sticks and a can of hot coals, then all the fixins for s'mores, everything you love about the experience, except dialed up just a bit. Right, So we've got homemade marshmallows and waffles instead of graham crackers. And in lieu of something homemade, they then serve Hershey's chocolate bars. There are heat lamps for the cold winter months and even wool blankets uh, in case you need extra cover. And as an aside, by doing s'mores out back, it also helps their turn times. Because if people do dessert out back, it frees up the table inside so that they can maximize covers to drive more revenue. The choice to offer s'mores on their menu illustrates their sense of fun. It tells the chef's story, and it also helps them stay profitable. But wait, there's more. Servers in the restaurant wear black jeans, a white button-down, and an olive green apron. But out in the garden, the servers are told to wear flannel, you know, to make the experience more authentic, to feel more outdoorsy. Nostalgia is also important, and so the playlist in the restaurant is a mix of the chef's favorite songs growing up. So it's a mix of Stevie Wonder and the Beatles and Otis Redding, Patsy Cline, David Bowie, and more. They serve hot cocoa out in the garden, especially popular in the winter months, and they make their own little packets for service. So think like little Swiss Miss packets, but homemade. And again, it all goes back to the story of Greg Backstrom and his days as a Boy Scout. And then, and this is what I really wanted to get to, Each and every dish has a specific story that goes along with it. So menu descriptions are given out to the staff, and in addition to the list of ingredients and the allergens, servers have to learn a story about the dish. That's right. Each and every dish has its own story, something uh, to point out to the guests. So sometimes it's about the inspiration for the dish, like the duck, right? They do a Thai-style duck, and it's a riff on one of the chef's favorite dishes from a nearby Thai restaurant and their uh, what they call the spicy, crispy morning glory salad. Um, The pork dish is an homage to the Italian pork sandwich made famous in Philadelphia. So it's pork with broccoli rabe and raclette cheese. Other stories uh, might be about the presentation, Uh, so the best way to enjoy, for example, the restaurant's signature dish, um, their carrot crepe. Servers explain the story of how best to eat it, right? All the good stuff is underneath the crepe, they'll say. You got little neck clams plus a carrot clam broth. Cut the dish into corners, use a spoon, and just scoop up everything into one bite. That way you get a little bit of the carrot crepe plus a little bit of the shaved raw carrots that are on top and the sunflower seeds, the little neck clam, and then some of that rich sauce that pools on the bottom. There's no wrong way to eat it, but there's definitely a right way. Other stories uh, might be about the unique process of the of making the dish. So the way the chef pulls from his experiences at Alinea using heightened techniques to do unique things with food. So they make a beet paint that covers the bowl for their beet salad. They use tapioca to help stabilize uh, lobster crackers, uh, which they use for one of their snacks. Dehydrated shrimp is a garnish for another dish. Uh, The scallops are something called broken scallops, meaning it's a high-quality product, the kind of item they'd serve at Per Se or Jean-Georges, but they're torn or broken. They taste delicious, but they don't look so great. Well, what does Olmsted care? They slice them up anyway. They throw them on skewers and sear them on the plancha. So it's a story that shows the value built into the restaurant and one that illustrates their dedication to sustainability. So all of the plates and water cups are made in Brooklyn. The staff can tell you the exact uh, pottery shop where they're made and then even give you their business card. That's a story that speaks to their partnerships and their sense of community. Uh, The bar doesn't stock a lot of well-known spirits. You get no Grey Goose, no Plymouth Gin, no Johnny Walker. Instead, they work with small batch producers, often local, to create a more curated experience. 
So when people ask for a Tanqueray and Tonic, it provides the server with an opportunity to engage the diner. Uh, the server can say, you know, we actually don't carry that because we like to work with smaller distilleries. Uh, so I'd like to recommend Gin X. So then it becomes about guiding the diner, about introducing them to something they'd perhaps never heard of. Uh, and they view that as an opportunity to educate and connect with their guests. And that too speaks to the kind of restaurant they are, the kind of experience they're crafting. It would be easy, of course, to stock a bunch of things that people would call for. They chose instead to take a different path. Literally, everything they do is about telling their story. Each diner has a different experience in the restaurant, but it's impossible for them not to capture at least a couple of these stories during their two-hour meal. And so each person then heads back out into the world, back to their own lives, with a story or two to tell about Olmsted. So then think about your own place. Think about some of the dishes on your menu. Is there a, a story uh, about uh, what inspired a certain dish? Uh, is there a reason behind your choice of music? Uh, your staff uniform, your logo, uh, your menu? What about your own origin story? If you're a pizza place, okay, you probably have to have cheese pizza and pepperoni pizza and sausage and peppers and mushrooms. Most people will want to create their own pizza. And yeah, there's probably nothing you can do about that. But why not create four or five signature pizzas, um, interesting combinations that speak to your taste and that set you apart from your competitors? Or what about garlic knots? If everyone else sells them, can you do your own version? What, what could they be? What do you serve instead of garlic knots? And can you tie that offering into a story? Who are you and why should I care about your pizza? If you don't supply the answers, no one else will. Another story, because why not? I got a ton of stories. Years ago, I worked at Tom Colicchio's restaurant here in New York City called Kraft, and it's a beautiful restaurant, really stylish, and the most interesting aspect of the room is this two-story wine cellar that displays thousands of different bottles. There's a little catwalk on the second floor, so patrons often will watch the sommeliers retrieving bottles for them, and the work was done by a place called The Iron Shop down in Broomall, Pennsylvania, just about 40 minutes outside of Philadelphia. The designers would take trips down to check on what progress was being made, and then they saw this table on one of their trips uh, that, the, uh, that the workers were using to bang out the iron. And they decided to buy that from the shop to use as the bar in the restaurant. So whenever a guest would comment on the wine racks, talk about how beautiful they were, we would tell the story of how we actually turned their work table into the bar at the front of the restaurant. Anything valuable has a story. Or to put that in reverse, we craft a story to give something value. So again, stories in selling do one of five things. Number one, stories that communicate a brand's mission, their why, uh, stories that spark conversation, stories that validate price, stories that bring a deeper appreciation for the product or the brand, and then stories as mythology. And you can find stories in anything. I told you a bunch today, and I've got a million more. Every place I've worked, every client I've helped, I help them find stories to tell. So how can you start finding stories? Well, here are some ideas, ways to start down this path. Think about your origin story, right? How you got started. Stories about uh, why something is done a certain way, uh, why you made certain choices, quirky choices maybe. Uh, there are stories about your mission, your values, your why, actually why you do this, why you're passionate about your work. You've got stories about uh, the inspiration behind a certain dish, 
stories about the process, literally how a certain dish is made, stories about your relationship with the community, the neighborhood, and on and on and on. Again, we do this because stories stick in people's minds better than anything else. We do this to build awareness and trust with our audience, both our existing customers as well as our potential customers. And we do this because it helps us get better at creating separation, differentiating ourselves from our competitors. Now, your assignment this week is to write down 10 stories that only you can tell. I've given you tons of examples and ideas for sparking inspiration. Look around, think about what you do, why you do it, and how you're different. And if you have trouble coming up with 10, then I think you've got a problem. I'll hazard a bet and say that you're probably not where you want to be revenue-wise, and so you should start looking at your menu and considering changes, changes that better reflect who you are and who your customers are, how you stand apart. Don't just offer a burger. People can get a good burger anywhere. Make yours different. Come up with a signature burger, right? One that comes with a story on the side, and maybe you're afraid of upsetting your customer base. You won't. If someone wants just a plain cheeseburger, trust me, they're just going to ask for it. And of course, you can give it to them. But in the meantime, a signature burger has a story. So find 10 stories. After you've got them, write them down so that they can get passed on. The next step, of course, is finding ways to incorporate them into what you do. And that's today's lesson, right? all about how stories sell. But before I let you go, I want to remind you that I'm still offering a pre-sale special from now through the end of March. I'm launching two different online workshops this summer. Killer Content is all about capturing great food photography and Email Strategy for Restaurants is all about incorporating e-blasts into your marketing plan. Both are priced at $197, but I'm offering 50% off for listeners of this show. That offer ends in just a few weeks at the end of March. If you're still on the fence, please don't miss your chance. I'd love to have you this summer. As always, I appreciate you being here. Keep spreading the word about the show. Keep doing the assignments, and I will see you back here next week.